1: everyone and welcome back to Menna's Masterclass. It is not often you get to interview a childhood hero so I was thrilled to interview Steve Waugh on the day his photography exhibition opened. It is called The Spirit of Cricket India and is taking place at the Hyatt Regency in Sydney. All the information on the exhibition and his book of the same title are in the show notes. Definitely check it out. Now, here is a cricketer that needs no introduction, Steve Waugh. All right, I'm here in the Hyatt Regency in Sydney with um, the great Australian captain, Steve Waugh. Steve, welcome to the podcast. How are you?
2: Very good, thank you. Excellent. Uh, thanks
1: very much for coming on. Uh, when I was watching you play, and, and as an Australian player, you very much um, you know, had a vision for the world. You would always, on tour, you know, write your diaries and take photos and... You know, you wanted to take in the world, and you know that's seemed to be evident in this um, beautiful exhibition, the spirit of cricket in India. Um, where did that sort of vision come from? A boy from Bankstown?
2: Oh, I don't know. I think you it, exposed to different things on my first tours to the subcontinent, and it was such a different world to what I was used to, and I found it fascinating. I'm, I guess I'm curious and inquisitive by nature. I love looking out the bus window and I always sit at the front of the bus and see what was happening outside on the streets and it was so different to coming from Penania in the western suburbs of Sydney. Always took a camera with me, took some photos, um, so I guess I was just interested in what was happening outside and um, I figured uh, after going on a number of tours, you know, that cricket was, was pretty hard work, playing professional cricket. And when you weren't successful, if you went back to the room and thought about cricket the whole time, you get you could get these negative thoughts in your head. So I wanted to get out, escape away from cricket, clear my head, um, did a bit of writing, did some photography, always tried to see the sights, meet some people, go out and try and embrace the culture. So it was a natural progression, um, sort of driven by the fact that I didn't want to stay in my room and just think about cricket 24-7.
1: Yeah, because Australian teams, you know, up until that point, had sometimes been a bit shy about really immersing themselves in foreign cultures and stuff. So it really was a bit of a – you could really see that development. Yeah. I think it helped.
2: Yeah, we're probably fortunate uh, in the players these days. You know, the hotels they stay in, the way they looked after the transport, um, just the flights, flying business class. But back when I first started, you, you flew economy. You weren't necessarily staying at the best hotels. Uh, the food probably wasn't as good as it was these days. It was much more challenging circumstances and situations in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and before that. So um, they're definitely spoiled these days compared to, when I first started my career, so it was a little bit harder to get out there and embrace the culture, and it wasn't um, as easy. Nonetheless, um, I think probably sometimes in those eras, maybe there was a bit of a siege mentality too that, you know, it was tough, and when things went bad, you sort of exaggerated them in your own mind. So it was a bit of both. It was definitely tougher to tour in those early days, um, but maybe the attitude wasn't as embracing as it is now
1: you certainly see a different attitude now with all the players that they mix in the IPL and these different leagues. There seems to be a little bit more camaraderie um, between the players. Where did um, this sort of exhibition come from? What sort of motivated you to get into photography and start with India?
2: Again, I wanted to have some hobbies and pastimes besides cricket because, you know, you needed to get away from it. So, Obviously writing a few books, taking photography was another interest I had, um, so I'd always taken a camera with me, taken lots of shots and hoped for the best, and back in those days you had to wait for your, your film to get processed, and um, if I took shots on, on some tours, it maybe take one or two weeks, and I took a lot of shots on slide film because I use those for my books because it was better quality, so it would sometimes take even longer to get processed. So that was a bit of a hobby, um, but I, I could never really get out and take the photos I wanted to in the subcon because when you're in the Australian team your fame is such that you know you can't step outside the hotel for longer than 10 seconds and you get inundated so I couldn't really go out and monitor the streets and take the shots I wanted to so I had to wait till the profile wasn't as great as it was when I was playing and that took probably 15-20 years and I went back um, 18 months ago and sort of snuck out there and we uh, managed to get you know uh, impromptu shots on the side of the road we would pull up and see a cricket game and, I'd go out and try and take some photos. Obviously, people started to recognise you after a little while, and um, the give and take was, you know, let me take my photographs of you guys trying to showcase the spirit of cricket, and after that, we'll have a game of cricket. So everyone got what they wanted, I got the shots I wanted, and they had the game of cricket afterwards.
1: Yeah, they got to play cricket with Steve. Wall, what a dream for some of those Indians. I know you've got a very close relationship with India through your charity work and obviously your playing career. What, What did you learn when you were taking these photos about cricket in India?
2: Um, I think it's pretty much the same worldwide that you know cricket is a great level. It doesn't matter which background, you're from which colour you are, which race, which religion, how much money you got. When you have a game of cricket, it's a contest. It's it's one against it's you against someone else, and you've got as good a chance of succeeding as anyone. So everyone's equal when you start a game of cricket. Um, you just need a bat and a ball. Um, you can make the stumps up from you know putting a bit of chalk on the wall, or putting a garbage can there, or finding some bricks. Make a stump. Um, you can imagine where your field is and away you go so it's really up to the imagination um, your attitude and um, and your commitment and you can have a game so it's pretty much the same when I grew up in the western suburbs of Sydney we'd find any space was available we'd turn it into an imaginary cricket game make up our own rules and away you go.
1: Incredible and I know you're working on a book now um, about cricket in Australia how's that going?
2: Well it's just started I, I had the concept of doing the spirit of cricket India first because I think that's sort of the almost a home of cricket and where it's a religion, a bit like football in Brazil, I suppose, or golf in South Korea. Um, You know, certain countries that just have... are so passionate about one sport. But India's got its own way of playing cricket. Australia, we're pretty unique as well. I want to capture cricket on the beaches, cricket in the outback. People involved in the game, from the the tea ladies um, who prepare the afternoon teas at cricket, to the groundsmen, to people who are loyal to their clubs, maybe doing the scoring or the scoreboards... Um, going to see Outback Cricket. Uh, so I started a few weeks ago, um, did some portraits of Bob Simpson. Um, unfortunately, we lost Alan Davis, and he was going to be my first subject. I was literally 12 hours away from taking Alan's portrait, and he fell ill, which was which was a, a tragedy, because he's one of my favourite cricketers and an all-time great. Um, so I've just started. I got some backyard shots a few weeks ago. Um, yeah, I want to find out where are the great stories in Australian cricket. Um, hopefully people will tell me why cricket's important to them and why why they should be in my next book
1: yeah excellent was it good to see Simo?
2: it was you know he's um you know had some health issues um but you know really an icon of australian cricket really when you think about it you know a captain coach selector administrator every part of the game he's been involved in and um you know and and, and by coincidence he's the only cricketer um that was involved in both tight tests he played in the first tied test uh, against the west indies and He was coached when we uh, were involved in the second tight Test against India.
1: Yeah, he's left a huge legacy on the game. So, you know, I wanted to go through some of my favourite moments in cricket involving yourself. Uh, You know, I was lucky enough to be at some of the the best, um, You know, followed the 99 World Cup, so thank you for that. Could have all ended in tears, but it didn't. Uh, So let's go back to my first memory of you, which is in uh, 5th of January 1989 at the MCG, that catch off Roger Harper. That's it. It's all. It's high. It's miles in the air. Hughes is coming around, and so
2: it's, oh, it's, what a catch, what a catch, that's the, great, the greatest catch, oh, unbelievable Stephen Waugh, running
0: backwards, almost colliding with Hughes down there, and the side screen, what a catch. Probably the best outfield
1: catch you've ever seen. Like people now give all the, these people credit catching on the boundary with the rope you literally had your life in your hand you got Merv Hughes barreling towards you 150 kilos you got the sight screen what' sort of I don't know what's your memories of that that
2: moment Well I guess I was playing that day. it would have been six so I wouldn't have been able to catch because the ropes would have been well inside the boundary but um, yeah back in those days I mean we did a lot of fielding practice under Bob Simpson again because you know he was just relentless in making us a better fielding side and we did. All our fitness by taking running around, taking catches. So you know, often we'd have these high balls where he'd pick one person out, and you get ten or fifteen balls in a row where he'd hit, hit as far as he could away from you. So he'd full stretch to catch it, and then he turn, you go the other way. Sometimes he hit it above you, and you have to run, and then all of a sudden look up in the sky and try and take it. So it was literally um, one of those scenarios where Roger Harper—it was a slow ball of Craig McDermott, full swing, hit it way up into the night sky. And I knew instantly I had to run full pace and then turn around hopefully at the right time and look up and catch the ball because I I couldn't afford to look at it all the way because I wouldn't have got to it. So head down, sprinting off, um, didn't think about anything else bar catching the ball. Didn't see Murphys didn't see the side screen, didn't see the boundary. Totally focused uh, and I looked up at precisely the right time and and it just dropped into my hands like someone had dropped it from six inches away, just fell into my hand perfectly and... At that time, I realised that, uh, hang on, everyone's pretty close here, <laughs> i better duck down the back <laughs> of this ice cream before I run into the fence, and really, I didn't give it much thought until I watched the replay later on, and... Clearly, I didn't learn too much because I ran into Jason Gillespie a few years later.
1: Yeah, <laughs> different, different circumstances there. But that, that catch still holds up. You look at it on the replays, it's still incredible. You know, and, and it's really an era when the one-day team was like like the rock stars of Australian cricket. You know, you and Dean Jones and uh, those nights used to just light up Australian television and, um, you, know, the, you know, sort of a, a really important era of one-day cricket for Australia.
2: Yeah, Dean Jones was the one that was a catalyst, really, uh, particularly when he played at MCG. He owned that turf down there and he walked out. It was like, you know, the lead singer, like Nick Jagger on the Rolling Stones. He, he led the band, and he took us out there, and um, and the place just lit up, and it gave us an extra 10% playing in Melbourne when he was there. Um, and his style of cricket was, you know, round twenty wickets as hard as good, you know, throwing in the field, he'd dive around, throw the balls from the boundary over the stumps, and... Um, he got the crowd going. Same with Merv Hughes, I guess, as well. But yeah, Dean Jones was was an incredible player. And yeah, I guess looking back on it, um, one day cricket was so popular back then. The night games were a big event, and um, for us, it was really tough because you wouldn't get back to hotel till late. Adrenaline was still in your system. You couldn't get to sleep at three and four in the morning, and then we'd be on a plane the next morning and go to the next venue. So it was, it was pretty full on.
1: A few sunglasses in the mornings. Definitely. Uh, it looked like you had a lot of fun playing with Dino, especially batting. I remember, I think that summer, at the end, last 10 overs of a game against the West Indies at the SCG, you scored quite a few runs in a partnership. You two seemed to really gel together at the crease. Yeah,
2: I enjoyed batting with Nick, so We love running between the wickets. We are both quick between the wickets. Um, and we took on the opposition. Um, it was never a backward step with, with, with Dino. He... Um, was always let's take him on, let's let's up the ante, let's um, let's control the match, um, you know, play with hustle, let's put pressure on our position. So I liked the way he played the game, and um, yeah, he was never short of confidence. So he um, you know, just, someone's just get in the slipstream behind him and and go with the flow. Yeah, he sadly missed. Um, for a sure. terrible
1: loss for Australian <laughs> cricket. So from there led led into the nineteen eighty nine Ashes tour, and you went over with a test average in the mid thirties. Came back test average in the 40s a couple of brilliant hundreds at Headingley and lords what do you think clicked in that tour for you
2: i think we were just all pretty relaxed for some reason um i don't know it was a good bunch and we're just all happening in our first test match at Headingley. mark taylor got his a century in his second or third test and i thought well why haven't i got one i've been playing 25 tests pick up your game and some reason it relaxed me and i played you know, really good innings, got my first 100, then I was off and running, and then it was just um, like a snowball effect. Everyone played their best cricket. Um, we were total underdogs. We won that series 4 0, would have won at 6 0 except for the rain. And um, that was against a pretty good England side with a lot of really great players. So you know, that was uh, an exceptional tour. We got on really well. We spent four and a half months together. We played 13 county games, I think, plus some one day. So yeah, it was just non stop cricket, and we just tried to, to beat everyone the county games um we, we we just said let's start winning let's get in the habit of winnings and that's when we changed the mentality of that side by just you know being ruthless even in the games that probably didn't matter as much we wanted to play as well as we could
1: yeah I still remember that back foot drive to bring up the hundred tried to play it in the nets not quite as successfully <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um
2: yeah.
1: so then actually you know after that you were dropped from the test side and you had a little bit of a sort of gap between um I think at the end of the summer after. And I remember I was um, training with Waverley Grey Cricket Club and I got in a car with a first grader to go to the other oval and he said, who's your favourite cricketer? And I said, Steve Warren. He said, oh, don't think we'll see him in the test side again. Uh, and I wish I could remember that guy's name, but I can't. Um, <laughs> yeah, he so, might own
2: up now when he listens to this. Yeah,
1: so it was the, uh, the 2nd of January, 1993. Yep. You were, you'd you been recalled into the side for to face the Windies. You were batting at three. And I remember... Uh, This brilliant 100, an even 100 against the West Indies. It was a terrific innings.
0: Three runs away now from what would be
2: a very good 100. That's well played. They may go for three here. This could be Stephen Ward's first 100 against West Indies in test cricket. Back he comes. He's flying down the wicket. That's his century.
1: You know, from that point around then, your test average, you know, in your first 37 tests or f- something, it was an average around 35. And then your next 120 tests, you average almost 60 with the bat. Did you do anything in that sort of period out of the side?
2: Um, yeah, I think, again, Bob Simpson was an influence. He's, he, he sort of admonished me one time in the net saying, look, you're practicing to get out in the game. Because I go in nets and I play some you know, great shots and play – you know a full repertoire of shots get out a few times and think i had a good session he goes no well that's you've had some nice shots but you've you got out a number of times and the way you practice is the way you're going to play so that stuck in my mind and from that moment on i played every every net session like it was a test match i whoever was bowling to me i imagine where the fieldsmen were try and hit in the gaps and try and play as if i was in a test match so all of a sudden when it really counted you could reproduce under pressure pretty easily so it was a way i trained which was a change um I no longer wanted to look really great and score fantastic 30s and watch everyone else score the runs. I wanted to you know, be batting and not be in the changing watching everyone else score runs. So I probably got a bit more ruthless, um, managed my game a bit differently, became more professional and, um, and once I knew I could score runs then it became a habit. You certainly did. 30 odd test hundreds after that. Then sort of fast forward
1: to the West Indies tour of 1995. So as a fan, the, the 93 loss in Adelaide to, by one run was just heartbreaking. On the edge of the Frank Worrell Trophy border in there, um, good family friend Ian McDonald was the manager. We we're all... I thinking it was going to happen and it didn't yeah, so yeah. I can imagine how upset the team was but then you head to the West Indies in 1995 and it's the famous Jamaica Test 200, 230 with your brother, just an incredible performance that lives on in the ages and that could go for four, there's a long
0: chase around for Kenny Benjamin who's picked it up rather late, they could run for here Kenny Benjamin is not the fastest of fielders in the West Indies team, and they'll come for the fourth, which will bring him up his
2: 200. What a magnificent effort. One of the greatest moments in his career. Got Australians running out from everywhere here.
1: When you brought up the 200 and saw Greg Ritchie running towards you, what did you think?
2: (laughs) Uh, I didn't expect it, that's for sure. Um, It was just. It was like the cavalry running out to the middle of the pitch. And, um, a few rums. That cat had a few run, rums under his, under his belt, and um, I think he jumped from out of the stand and hurt himself, so he had blood over his hands and, and mud, so he patted me on the shoulder, and there was blood and dirt, and I could smell the rum. It was like, um, I thought, this is a bit strange. Um, and then there was someone else had a didgeridoo, on the, playing a didgeridoo on the pitch, and another guy had a, the red Sharon footy, AFL footy bouncing it on the pitch. It was like Australia had taken over for a couple of minutes, and the West Indies players were looking around going, what is going on here? I mean, Richie Rich just couldn't believe it, that Greg Ritchie was out in the middle. He sort of said, Fat Cat, what are you doing, man? What, what are you doing out here?
1: You're um, a former
2: So it was just, um, it was uh, one of those crazy, funny situations that would never happen now with professional sport and people not being allowed on the grounds. But back then it was, um, all the Aussies were so excited. I think we been drinking a bit of, um, bit of rum on the sidelines and uh, enjoying themselves.
1: Yeah, and was that... That tour and that innings in particular, almost like your Mount Everest against that fearsome West Indian attack—a team that had been undefeated for almost twenty years—was that kind of your Everest moment?
2: Uh, both for myself and the team, you know, we, we knew that opportunity. We didn't want to waste another opportunity. We felt as if Adelaide was a bit of a waste of chance. West Indians were sort of—you could see—they were declining a little bit—and we felt it was our time to take the number one mantle and. We let that slip in Adelaide, so the second opportunity came around. It was really it was let's it's now or never. Someone's got to take this number one ranking off the win. It's, we should we should do it. Let's let's do it. And Mark and myself had that obviously a great partnership. We played a really good test, um, won that series, and then never looked back from that moment on. But um, but sometimes you you don't take those moments. But we trained all our life to beat the best um, in the in toughest situation under the most pressure when it counted at the most, and that that was that test match. So it all came together. So. If I look back and say what's the most important innings of my career, that I think that 200 was both personally and from a team point of view the most important.
1: It's hard to think that the West Indies haven't won a series against Australia since then. If you'd said that to you then, I think you probably wouldn't have believed them.
2: No, they had a huge uh, decline I and mean, so quickly it was. Uh, it wasn't great for world cricket. It was sad to see. Actually, I mean, I, I want to see a good West Indies side because they, they, their spectators are so knowledgeable so much fun and it was a great tour to go to the West Indies the Caribbean. Um, you really felt like you are in the the Lions den there and it was just a cauldron and uh, if you could perform there you knew you were going okay in Test Match cricket but it's obviously changed since then uh, they lost focus and Test cricket um, probably wasn't their priority it became more T20 so I'd love to see them strong again. Um, they've got a bit of talent but it's going to be hard because there's so much money in T20 cricket now that you know why would you uh put yourself on the line and be vulnerable and fragile and test cricket when you can make a lot more money and it's a lot easier playing T20.
1: Yeah, and, um, you know, a lot of economic pressure in the West Indies. What, what about Curtly um, Ambrose? As a spectator, he was just fearsome, just never seemed to bowl a bad ball, steep bounce. What, what was he like? Um, I know he didn't talk to the opposition. Have you ever, like, talked to him since then?
2: Yeah, we've met a number of times. I get on really well with Curtly, but you're right, he never said a word to you. The only person he talked to was a captain, and he would just say captain as he walked past the captain. And um, So he was, he was very intimidating. You talk about sledging... Uh, yeah, the, the toughest opponent is someone that doesn't say anything, just looks at you like a Kirtley Ambrose. And that West Indian attack, they really said much to you, but you knew you were up against it. And were they trying to get you out? Were they physically going to hurt you? That was probably much more intimidating. So great athlete, outstanding bowler, and um, yeah, one of the best best to play the game.
1: Yeah, definitely. So from there, you know, Australia went on a great run. And then you took over the captaincy in early 1999, went back to the West Indies two all draw. But then it was the World Cup of 1999. So, Steve, I'm a youngster. I've left university. i put all my savings into going over to the UK to follow the tour. And I get over just after Australia, get through to the Super Sixes. So I was a bit nervous early. Yep. But then, um, you know, we, me and a friend, Macca, we, we caught a bus from London to Headingley for the Super Sixers game against South Africa and there's all these South African tourists in front of us and they were giving us grief saying you were going home. we were going home Lance Klusner was going to bash us out of the tournament so I get to Headingley and I see the greatest one-day innings I've ever seen 129 out by yourself Australia's World Cup future on the line I've, I've heard that the selected Trevor Holmes had said that if Australia misses the semi-finals you were going to get the sack is that true
2: well he didn't say sack but the uh, uh, reading between the lines up was what was going to happen so yeah I never minded that because I was always open and honest with Trevor and um we could have that dialogue and you know it didn't really affect me too much in some ways I probably needed that sometimes to get me motivated so um yeah he pretty much uh, said that but it didn't worry me too much um it didn't take my focus away and in fact, it probably steeled me to perform better, so maybe it did me a favour. <laughs>
1: uh, that innings was just phenomenal. You seemed to be in the zone. I, from the, from, I remember one shot, there was a slog sweep off you on one knee, maybe Elworthy was bowling, it was, yeah. and it went like a shot from a gun. Um, you know, Was that yeah. a special day for you?
2: Yeah, I do remember that shot. It was probably the sweetest ball I ever hit. I'm a quick bowler, taking the gamble, going down on one knee, and you're right, I hit him. A long way it was a big boundary so it was one of the best shots I've ever played but yeah I think um, I look back at my career some of the best innings I play were when it was like uh, make or break and I sort of said to myself i got nothing to prove and some, for some reason you go with a clear head and maybe that's what they call being in the zone I think um, it's hard to replicate that but it's it's about just having the ability just to think about one thing and not a lot of things come into your head so I was playing with a clear mind um, felt great obviously had a bit of luck with Herschel dropping that catch um but yeah, I felt as if I was in control. And and, and, and all through that innings, I, I had the inkling that we were going to win the game. Oh, he hasn't waited for that. That's gone. That's six. And he's got cramped from the shot. He recovered very quickly. Well, every now and again, Steve Ward just from nowhere plays... A fantastic shot it's cross batted but it was in control he knew where he wanted to hit it and goodness me hit it he did he hit that out the screws which rose that 17f well that's it
0: that's a magnificent century a century played when the pressure was really on he is a fantastic cricketer. up
1: Obviously, then you get into the semi-finals, and you're playing South Africa again in Birmingham. That particular matchup between that South African side and yours seemed to be a really fiery one. You know, the really two competitive sides going to battle.
2: Yeah, he played similar styles, no doubt about that. They're a tough team and full of superstars as, as well as we were. So probably two of the best quality one-day sides that ever played the game, really, when you think about it. And we were backing up like two days after that, so we were mentally fatigued. I mean, I was mentally very tired. And I'm sure everyone else was. So, it t- technically it probably wasn't the greatest game, in the semi-final, but um, emotionally and um, score-wise, it was. You know, be remembered as probably one of the greatest one-day games ever. You know? Oh, absolutely! A roller coaster. Both yeah. sides could have won it ten times, lost it ten times, and we just end up tying the game. We didn't actually win it; we tied the game. So. But um, yeah, it was it was an incredible game and uh, it was played on adrenaline because i say both sides were very mentally, physically and mentally tied going into that match.
1: Now you'd probably be playing a super over to decide that game. I was one of those mad people running on from the sideline when um, Gilly took the bails off. I mean, just one thing that, you know, I've interviewed Damien Fleming on this podcast and he was saying that, you know, he was bowling around the wicket and it was, Clues that smashed him for two fours and he said to you, I want to bowl over the wicket, Skip. And you said, I'll back you. You just do what you want. And a consistent message from your, your teammates and people you led was that you you backed them. You know, where did that come come from? Oh, look,
2: I think it came from actually being a bowler and having captains who would tell you where the field where they wanted the field and and probably giving you too much information. I always felt like, hang on, I've got the ball in my hand. Let me control the situation and trust me. So, I always would listen to the bowler and uh, and if he was convincing enough or I believe that he was positive and. Believed he could do, that. and I'd go with him because he had the, he could control it. He had the ball in the hand, and uh, and that was the same with all the players. Keep it really simple. Don't complicate it. You get to that level, you're a good player. Um, I'm not going to tell you how to play, but I'll, I'll give you confidence and, and the backing. I think that's what most people want. Even at the top level, they want to have someone who um, can reaffirm or or back them up, or or just give them some some positive vibes because um, you know they you're after that one percent, and that's. Sometimes that's all it is. So yeah, with Damien Fleming, I trusted him. Um, I said, "Look, mate, you do whatever you want, and uh, and let basically, fingers crossed, hope for the best." And it went our way.
1: That's right. But I think as well, you know, even in the Test side, you used to get more out of some players, Justin Langer, even Matty Hayden. and it just, I think, knowing that their captain was fully behind them just lifted them a little.
2: Yeah. Again, I just try to keep it really simple at that level. It wasn't about the big speeches on the table. It was um, it was telling guys, you know, how good they were, and I believe them, and. Giving these, you know putting subtle messages uh, with your journalists or newspapers where people would read stuff, um, and even before a match, if they read something positive in the paper, it might be just that again that one percent that would give them the confidence to do well on the day. And sometimes putting players out of their comfort zone and you know maybe changing the order or, or bowling in a different way or putting in different field positions. But it was it was just trying to give people confidence that. Um, that they could, they could succeed in any situation. So again, I, I didn't want to complicate it because I knew they were good players anyway. Um, it was just about giving that, that, that subtle bit of confidence behind the scenes.
1: And, you know, Shane Warne played such a huge role in that World Cup. He turned the semi-final, took four wickets in the final. Everyone I've interviewed about him says how amazing he was on the field. When, you know, you'd been in the test side for six seven years when he first came in how quickly did you twig on to the fact this guy's pretty special
2: uh, i was well before that we went on uh i think a, like a second 11 tour to zimbabwe i'm not sure what it was called but it was emerging players mark taylor myself and tom Moody were the senior players and um look the first day every bowl i was at bat pad and uh and he bowled and uh, i had literally heard the ball fizzing as it went through the air and i'd never heard that before i thought Jesus, this guy's putting some revolutions on the ball and he was a bit chubby in those days. But he had this, um, straight away, this incredible talent. And Victoria weren't playing him by coincidence. I said, look, come to New South Wales. And I sorted him a job at the local RSL. He was about to come to New South Wales. And Victoria said, no, no, we want him to stay now. Um, so, look, from the very first day I saw him bowl, it was, he was always going to be different. And then my final Steve War moment. But he could come back tomorrow. He could come back, have a good old and a bit of a looser on the leg stump, pick it off the two. Stuff the silver. We come for the gold. Palms had come back tomorrow. Aussies want it now. We're instant people. Come on, Stephen. Now, Vaughan's coming in, and deep mid wicket's coming in. He's going to play the slog sweep. All three are going over, or he gets this hundred. If Dawson pitches middle and off, he's in the frame. But so is Steve War, because he's just—you know—he's going to play this stroke oh this is it's death or glory off the last ball of the third day he's going to block it 2.33 for 5 here we go Dawson comes up and bowls to War, who drives and drives through the offside for his 100 that is extraordinary
0: and Steve War, a man of little emotion can barely restrain himself now his
2: helmet's off Oh, he's waving his back. You could not have scripted anything more remarkable than what we have
0: seen here this afternoon.
1: And it's the, the, the last ball century at the SCG. Uh, well, 2003, uh, just a magic afternoon I owned a restaurant at the time and uh, you know went from the ground to the restaurant and it was buzzing with your fans Steve so many people there talking about what a special day it was and you were so emotional you know what, what's it like you're coming to the end of your career everyone's sort of questioning what your role but then you deliver and, and do it in such a theatrical yeah, fashion yeah well, it was
2: something you, you sort of you hope it's going to happen, um, and you still think there's that special moment left in your career, and you've been training, and you, you know it's there, but you've got people doubting, and all of a sudden you start to self doubt as well. Um, but then when it comes, comes off, you think, Jesus, such a relief, and it's so exciting and such a great moment, and it's, um, it's a really good feeling. Um, yeah, so for me, it was. Um, I wanted to celebrate with the crowd because really they supported me, they got me over the line when I think about it. Um, that support was massive leading into the game, during the game. There was so much goodwill and I really carried that in that innings with me. I just um, got out there again and said, I've got nothing to prove, just enjoy it. It was like, um, you know, a bit like, um, you know, some of the other innings where I played with a real clear head and it was just, it was almost like I knew it was going to happen as long as I concentrated. Um, But a lot of that was due to the fact of the the spectators and, and the enormous support I had leading up to that match.
1: Oh, well, you were beloved at the SCG and still are. And a uh, year later, you pull up stumps. Um, you know, how's retirement been?
2: Well, I don't know what that word means. I retired from cricket, but it doesn't mean you retire from life and challenges. So I just moved in different directions. Uh, obviously, my charity, I'm very passionate about that. Uh, business, family, um, and doing projects like this. I mean, I was lucky also to be involved in the Beijing and London Olympics as a mentor of the Australian Olympic uh, team. And that was one of the great experiences of my life living in the Olympic village for three weeks and seeing all those sports um did something with the uh you know the the soccer team under Graham Arnold um obviously the Ashes mentor uh this photography journey so it's really been great that I've had the opportunity to um explore other opportunities and uh and to, and to follow other passions so I don't understand the word retirement I don't think I'll ever retire I think it um yeah to me that means putting a cue in the rack and I think that's um Yeah, when you go downhill so i'll I'll always stay active and always try and have a purpose with what i'm doing
1: yeah well gavin robinson the last guest said you like to be interested in interested in things so you're you're a passionate person um thank you very much for coming on the podcast um you know congratulations on your new book and i'm looking forward to the australian one coming out later this year
2: yeah sure and if anyone wants to get it just log on to the website steve but thanks for your support
1: thanks everyone for listening and a special shout out to our patreon subscribers Also, great news for Apple phone users. You can now access the premium content on the Apple Podcasts
0: app. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving. At your desk. Maybe at the gym. But you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach. And see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at VisitSpaceCoast.com. Sports Social Podcast Network.